This is the Journey 66 Book Writing Podcast. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are your road trip advisors. You may be at mile marker one and just thinking about an idea for a book, or maybe you've gone off-road in your writing and you want to restart the journey. Join Dave and me as we help you buckle up and write. Your book has a lifespan. There's the big debut, a six-week period when your book is newsworthy. And then there are the months and years that follow when you still want to sell books, but doing so is a lot more arduous. Your book takes a journey, and no one knows that better than Andrew Kite, internationally known business strategist and succession planning expert for family-owned businesses. About six years ago, Andrew published Myths and Mortals with Wiley Publishers, and it made a big splash in the family business space. Forbes called the book, A Guide for Successors of Family Businesses, a fascinating book, and the Financial Times praised it for its advice and the exercises to help successors discover if they are ready to take over. Today, Andrew is going to talk with us about his book writing journey, including how he publicized his book early on and how he continues to promote it years later. Welcome, Andrew. We're so glad to have you here today. Thanks. Glad to be with you guys. Yeah, this is going to be so much fun to talk about your book and how you continue to use it today. But before we dig into the interview questions, Dave and I always start out the podcast by sharing an area of our life where we've made progress over the past week. And as always, I am going to make Dave go first for this one. (laughs) Well, today I have such a shallow uh, level of progress. I washed my car this last weekend. And, and my, in my family, my dad is like a perfectionist. He's still alive at 86. And I swear to, well, I'm not going to swear to anything. It's just that at 86, his vehicle is spotless. So my brother and I always talk, we have there's five kids in the family, but there's another son. So it's uh, my brother and I always talk about what lousy sons we are because our vehicles are just dirty all the time. So I clean my car this weekend and I'm feeling really bullish about that so about myself it would have been criminal with such nice weather to not wash your car but my husband he also washed his car and the thing with washing cars is the moment that you get it dirty he's upset with me I'm like well my shoes are going to be dirty I'm going to bring in a little dirt from the outside (laughs) the same way like the moment you get it clean it's already dirty yeah that's hilarious so how about you what's the progress that you've made this one is silly too, but it feels like huge progress for me. I bought plane tickets for my family to go to New Mexico for spring break. My son's spring break. It's not next week, but the following week, he's on the quarter system. And it doesn't sound like a big deal getting tickets, but I couldn't figure out, would I go by myself? Would I go with a friend? Would we go on spring break? Do my, do my, does my family want to join me? And so finally I sat them down and said, are you going with me? And this will determine when I go then sat down, found the best price. Of course, it's not going to be a nonstop because tickets now are so expensive because we waited too long, but I made progress. We have the tickets. We are headed out for spring break. So I feel good about that because it was, it's one of those things that was just hovering and making me feel anxious because I hadn't made the decision. My mom's like, when are you coming out? When are you coming out? So now it's done. That's huge (laughs) progress. That's awesome. Big time progress reports this week, Dave. We washed a car and bought plane tickets. That's pretty (laughs) That's pretty first world like progressy. 
What about you, Andrew? Do you, do you make any progress this week that you would like to share with our audience? Yeah, no, it, it's interesting because, you know, I feel like this is a continual challenge for me, but the work that I do is really stressful sometimes and I deal with families with really emotional issues. So it's always a challenge to uh, manage that stress and stay relaxed. And so I got back from vacation on Sunday after 10 days of pure rest and relaxation. And so this week was a challenge in maintaining that relaxation as long as I could. I had five, 10 hour days back in, in the, the saddle and I, I, there was a lot of progress. I was able to, through breathing, going out for walks, little tips here and there that have helped me kind of continue the, the, the halo of, of vacation and trying to bring that relaxation into to my, my, my daily world as much as I can. That is progress because it is so hard to, I do feel like there's this big chasm between vacation life and work life. And so if you can bring some of that relaxation to the everyday, what a gift that can be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, thank you for sharing that. We're going to just, just delve right into this interview and we would love it if you told us a little bit about Myths and Mortals. What is the big idea? Where did you come up with the idea and where did the material come from? It all kind of started with, I guess, my journey, which is I inherited ownership in our fam family business uh, when my father passed away at the age of 52. And I was 22 at the time. So I had to step into ownership of our family business with my dad's cousins and figure out what are we going to do with this? Because it was really uh, a family farm that uh, and real estate that was not really going anywhere at the time. And so we had to figure out what are we going to do with this? So fast forward, I really made working with family businesses my life and my career. I, I teach a, a next generation leadership program at Loyola University Chicago and uh, had been working with successors for 10 years on how do you step out of the shadows of your parents? How do you step into the light of your own leadership? For, for everybody else, we, we go out and we get our first jobs and, and we don't necessarily have any shadow over us because you know we're going into a business that our family's not involved in. For many people who go into their family businesses, their careers uh, are kind of cast in the shadow of their parents, grandparents, sometimes great-grandparents. And I really wanted to understand how do, how do successors get over that, get over that challenge? So what I did is I went out and I interviewed successors over a period of time. And I'd like to say I had this kind of grand strategy. It really was just kind of more organic because I, I, being more of a strategic guy than a, than a, a project planner, I did not organize myself well. So over about three or four years, I cobbled together interviews with some amazing people like Bill Wrigley and Christy Hefner and John Tyson and Massimo Ferragamo. And I got these amazing stories about uh, what it was like to grow up in a family business, to grow up in uh, a world where there's already a story being told about your family and the, the legacy of your family. And now you're uh, trying to find your place in that story and how do you start to become the author of your own story, uh, so to speak. So it was really uh, out of that passion of, of working with next generations, having that next generation experience myself and wanting to provide something real to help next generation members that, that they didn't have as a resource before. So what was the center of gravity for the idea of myths and mortals. So what was, what was the main central idea of the book? 
The central idea was that it's hard to establish your own sense of identity when you're cast into an environment where the world is organized around how great your parents are, your grandparents are. There's this whole mythology that's been built up about the history of the family and all the great things the family's accomplished. So how do I establish my own sense of identity as a next generation member when people are only comparing what I do to the history of what our family has done? You know, it's what I call the successor's curse, which is your successes are never your own, but your failures always are. <laughs> so if, if I'm successful, it's because I'm a part of the Silver Spoon Club and I've had everything handed to me. Now, if I'm a failure, it's because I'm a part of the Silver Spoon Club and I've had everything handed to me. And every successor has to wrestle with that and figure out their own sense of identity, develop their own sense of credibility. And I talk about that in two ways, which is internal credibility is how do I build belief in myself? And how do I build, build belief in others, which is external credibility. And really that's one of the ways that you start to overcome that successor's curse and uh, say that I have something meaningful and valuable to bring to this story myself. And it's not just a story about my parents. What were your hopes, though, for the book? That, where it would go, whose hands it would get into? We all hope that it does something in the world besides just uh, inspire a few. So what were your hopes for it? <laughs> well, that's interesting because you've got the, the kind of fantasy and then the, the reality that you come to over time, right? So I had never written anything before other than articles and, and research papers and stuff like that. Um, so this book writing was a new experience for me and which is probably why it took six years to get the project done. The, the fantasy that you have while you're writing is it's gonna be this big, huge, meaningful thing that's gonna change the world and it's gonna end up on the New York Times bestseller list and blah, 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 right? That's the fantasy you have like, or at least I had in this is like, oh my God, this is gonna be this big transformational thing. And you know, the reality of it, once you get into it, is that you learn that writing a book is, is a challenging endeavor and that selling a book is greatly impacted by how you write it and what's the market for the book and what's the reality of the market for your book. The fantasy that I'm going to be on the New York Times bestseller list kind of is built on the idea that this is going to be a popular press book applicable to everybody, et cetera. And, you know, you look at the premise of my book and, you know, that doesn't match that reality. I have a, a very uh, important segment of the world that I work with, but it's a niche segment, right? It's not a, it's not a popular press. It's not a, a, a Stephen King uh thing that necessarily applies to everybody. And it's, I found that in writing the book, there was this struggle of like wanting to write this book that has broad applicability, which waters down perhaps its value to the audience that I truly uh, want to reach as my core audience uh, and who are going to be the real champions for the book when they read it. So that was a real kind of struggle is, is, understanding the re reality of the book business, which I didn't understand, you know, when you, you talk to your publisher and they say that 90% uh, of your volume is going to go through Amazon. You know, my publisher wanted to name the book Family Business Leadership and Succession Planning. Wow, that's a real inspiring title, right? But their, but their rationale was, it's how are you going to get found on Amazon? How are you going to get found on, on the web? 
And so that was really hard. So we, we came to a compromise position of myths and mortals, family, business, leadership, and succession planning. You have to get your arms around what's the reality of the market for my book, the audience for my book, and then how are you going to reach those audiences? Um, and then if you have a publisher, you're going to end up with wrestling with what is their vision for the book. I am fortunate that Wiley gave me broad, they, they really didn't interfere with the content at all. They really were champions for me getting my voice out there and telling the stories of these amazing people. So I really value that. Where we, we had more negotiations, really, it was more on the business side of the book of, of what do you title it? How do you get it out there? They did an amazing job with, with the cover. You know, we went through a few iterations to get that, to get my vision captured in, in the cover. When did you come to peace with this reality that because your book is so specific, it wouldn't be a New York Times bestseller? Do you remember a moment when you thought- It's not the New York Times bestseller? <laughs> I don't think so. Oh. Did it happen this week? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I, I thought we were right there. Um, so you're still not at peace with that, I think. I still haven't come to terms with it, I guess. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I think I think when when I got into the reality of, of getting out there in the market and getting some initial feedback on it, I think the closer I got to completing the book, the more and more I understood that its primary audience you always have to start with your core audience and build from there. We've done great with our, our core audience. And, you know, if I could look back in, if I were perhaps more organized, I might've been able to develop messages that could have reached other audiences, but the challenge of doing my day job, plus, oh, I'm going to, I can't make selling the book my full-time gig. Doing great with our core audience it makes it a huge success for me. If I'm starting to think about that second book and, and how to get it out there, I'm now thinking ahead of time, like going into it, there may be offshoot uh, messages for a broader audience that I could, could use, but I will always start with that core audience. But now going into it, I can have that in my mind of what are the offshoot audiences that might get value from this book that I can think about ahead of time. But again, I think I told you, I, I was pretty organic with this book. I was just like, eh, I should do a book because I'm at that stage in my life and my career. And then you get into it and you're like, oh, this writing a book isn't that easy, you know? And it's a big deal and it takes a lot of time. And I didn't quit my day job. I, I think it really got to start with your core audience, but then think about what are the, the adjacent audiences and, and think about the messaging. I never did a great job at thinking about the corollary messaging to the adjacent audiences. And that's what I'm going to do better with the next round. The mass market is dead. And one of the great marketers, Seth Godin, talks about the minimal viable audience. Mm -hmm. Usually we think of the phrase minimal viable product relation in relation to like a tech firm that creates a minimal viable product and then launches it and then builds features up on top of that. But I think that's a great phrase. And I, we've really latched onto it, this idea of a minimal viable audience. And you have to write to that audience because if you lose that, you lose the center of gravity of that book. And because if you communicate with that audience, 
that book does get referred and that you have to start there. You have to have a hook into the marketplace. And so yeah. I, I really appreciate what you said about that. Let's go into specifically once that book was launched, let's just talk about what you did around the time the book was launched. And I know you also have a consulting firm. You're a professor at Loyola uh, University of Chicago. You also have a consulting firm, a very uh, robust consulting firm. What did you do initially? I know you hired an outside firm to help you with the PR. What was done there in that early phase, if you can recall that? And what do you think was effective and what wasn't so effective? The, the first piece started with getting clear with Wiley about how they saw the book. And, you know, that's was everything from the cover to the price to what was the, the approach going to be to the look and feel of everything. The price was a big issue in the start because their rationale was your audience is rich family. So let's price it at $75 or $60. And we were just like, my families didn't become wealthy by buying $60 books, right? You know, that's not the mentality uh, of, it wasn't what I saw as the market for the book. And so graciously, they worked with me on that. We got to a point where I think our, our, our price got into the, the 30s. And then you look at Amazon requires a discount of like the, the, the price that they came up with ended us up at around $25 uh, at the launch that you could get it on Amazon. So the pricing was, I think, an important part of it. But in terms of getting out there and selling it, so... It started with working with, I, I worked with a great uh, PR firm called Cave Hendricks, and they specialize in business books. Full disclosure, my book is not a, a worldwide moneymaker. You know, it's a platform and a way to get my messages out. It has served me well. The money that I've made from my book has not come from the sales of the book. While it's done very well in its segment, it was the Book of the Week by the Times of London. It was number one in its category in Amazon early on. What I'm saying is I invested money in PR that uh, did not come back through book sales. It came back through other channels. But Cave Hendricks did a great job. We worked ahead of time before the launch on messaging. We had one pagers that described the book. We had a landing page uh, on the website, and we had different blurbs uh, developed for different audiences. And that led to a book launch uh, party. So I did one that was private for friends and family and, and confidants and, and some of the people I interviewed. And then I did uh, one that was sponsored that was for a broader audience that was a public event. And both of those were used to try to start to generate some initial buzz. And then Cave Hendricks really did a great job at reaching out to different media platforms to try to get engagement. They worked with me ahead of time to identify what what are your what are your fantasy places that you would you would like to be interviewed and 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 uh, get placement in. And, you know, so we we created a, a wish list of, of places, and then they went out and, and they, they hit a lot of those uh, big places. They got some really nice placement. They were the ones that helped me get named Book of the Week by the Times of London. They were the ones that helped me get exposure in Forbes. And then what that led to was they also set up the writing of articles. So we got article placements in different media outlets 
which now continue on the marketing uh, of not just the book of, of me as a professional, because they're out there on entrepreneurmagazine.com. Forbes, you brought up the Forbes comments. So some really nice placement. And it's led to is, it is more speaking opportunities, increased profile and credibility uh, with my audiences. I think my favorite, this is kind of a funny uh funny piece, but uh, a member of the Von Trapp family singers uh, uh, was given my book by uh, a friend of mine. And they said it was their favorite family business book. So I've kind of joked that, can I say endorsed by the Von Trapp family singers now? But not, that's unofficial. We can't say that. Uh, <laughs> you can say it here. You can yeah. say it here. That's really, you know, you've got the the, the financial and, and what it does for your, your brand, et cetera. But the impact that it has on the people is really what's important. It led to, you know, it was read by a member of one of the biggest families in uh, the U.S. who then reached out to me, and that's led to a four-year uh, relationship with that family that has been really valuable and meaningful to me and hopefully meaningful to them as well. It's a journey, though. It's work. You have to put, put aside the time to invest in that. And Wiley tried to be helpful where they could, but they really just aren't organized to put a lot of muscle and weight behind a book like mine that is 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 fairly niche. They put their PR efforts behind the, the bigger books that are going to have a bigger economic uh, hit on their their balance sheet. That's no no disrespect to them and what they need to do to run their business. So you just have to have that realization that you as the author are the one that, that pushes it forward. And, and what having that PR piece going for me has done is, is I think it, it's improved the legs of my book over time. I may not be hitting huge numbers on a monthly basis, but I'm getting consistent numbers still. I think what you're saying is that the book and the PR that you invested in, because I'm sure that was an investment, mm -hmm. it, it opened up speaking opportunities. It opened up, obviously business opportunities for your consulting firm. It also opened up more writing opportunities. And when you do those articles, that creates, uh, that creates links back to your website, back to the book, and really builds your brand over time. So I think that's, that's really strong. If I could ask this question, it's very tactical. Well, how long was the engagement with the PR firm? Was it six weeks? Was it three months? Was it six months from the time you engaged them to the time it was done? How long was that period? There was an initial contract that, if I'm remembering correctly, was from six weeks before the launch till six weeks after the launch. Uh, so the six weeks before the launch, we're kind of preparing the plan and getting uh, their arms around the book, the potential audience for the book getting testimonials and, and, and all those types of things. And then the, the six weeks after were taking advantage of that buzz uh, from the launch. And that, they did a great job at that. That's where we, you know, we got the buzz on Amazon for number one in the category. We got named the book of the week by Times of London. That, that was all really powerful. I then re-engaged them for a second contract for a second, uh, I think two months, because I, I felt that they were doing such a good job and I was really liking what they were getting for me. I think the challenge is, and, and you know, I don't know the reality of what it takes for them to uh, 
get all the opportunities they got, but it felt like it was harder for and harder for them to get attention for the book after the first six weeks because it wasn't new anymore. That's that's typical. Once it stops being news, it's a different kind of publicity and different kind of work. Yeah. How are you using the book now? So it is built into the curriculum of uh, not all my the things I teach, but a couple of the programs that I teach where it's applicable at Loyola, it's included in those curriculums. And this is something I did when I started is when I got out there for speaking engagements right after the launch of the book, what I did was in the negotiation of the fees for my, my speak speeches, I gave them discounts on my fee if they purchased a certain number of books because it's easier to sell bulk books than it is to sell them one by one, right? Yeah, yeah. So anybody who was coming to me asking for me as a speaker right after the book came out, I was saying, yeah, my fee is $10,000 for the speech, but I'll do it for 5,000 if you buy a hundred books, right? And net, they, on a price perspective, they're spending less, they're getting a hundred books and I'm still getting five grand, but I'm also getting the buzz of a hundred books going out the door, right? And it's a lot easier to get your numbers up if you're selling books in hundreds and or even fifties than it is trying to get three or four people to buy your book after a speech. Have you gotten any recent feedback from the book? Anybody like write you or say, I read your book, anything positive, even all these years later that you continue to receive? I had this most recently is somebody married into one of the families that I work with. And he also comes from a family business. And he said, oh yeah, I read your book like three years ago. It really helped me with this. We actually just did a... Uh, an educational program for a major franchise organization. And it was largely built off of the book and the concepts in the book. And everybody in the class got the e-copy of the book. And we, we did this online session with both the parents and the kids. And they were all really drawn in by the concepts and really, it, it showed me that, that the content of the book was, was meaningful and valuable and the, the content still has legs. I don't know if you guys know this, but the book was translated into Mandarin Chinese and it was actually, the rights were actually purchased. It, it wasn't somebody who just knocked it off and printed it. It was somebody who bought the rights from Wiley. Uh, it's been tra translated uh, into Russian by a Ukrainian person. And the Spanish version is hopefully going to be released in the next six months. That's incredible to think that your words are having a global impact. Really, it's not too many, not too many authors can say that. So congratulations on that. Well, if there are any Mandarin speakers out there that can, can tell me whether they translated it correctly, I'd love to get some help. <laughs> I actually have two copies in my office. Andrew, I'm curious, is there a story in the book that people connect with more than any others? There, there are a bunch of iconic stories in there, and I think different people connect to different stories because of how it relates to their lives and their experiences. But I think everybody always loves uh, hearing about the Ferragamo story, just because the Ferragamo family is such an iconic family. And you know, uh, you know, my, my favorite story is just this really illustrates the power of the the stories and mythology in a family business, but. Uh, Massimo Ferragamo, who was the guy I was interviewing, was his dad died when he was three years old. 
And so the stories about his father, you know, like I've everybody really think that that Salvatore Ferragamo started in Italy. It actually started in the U.S. Salvatore Ferragamo was making shoes for the uh, film industry, and he was uh, doing uh, the shoes were, were were so great, and the the stars loved him that he opened a boutique in L.A. And he had this uh, saying that when a woman comes into the store, you make her feel like a princess. When a princess comes into the store, you make her feel like a queen. But there is this kind of aura built up around his father. So Massimo, whose father passed away when he was three years old, didn't really have an opportunity to have a relationship with his dad. But all of these stories about how his father had just had this aura about him and, and what his values were and what how he did business and making these really artistically powerfully beautiful shoes and what it meant to the people who bought those shoes that those stories of have allowed Massimo to really have a relationship with his father uh, even though you know they weren't alive for together for for a long period of time so i think that's a really pretty iconic story from the book that i that i always love and and, and tell and an important story about how um, the shadow isn't always dark i mean these stories can mm -hmm. create some really positive connections as well not just negative and, and it's wrestling with what are the stories that are helpful and meaningful and help us make meaning and give us a sense of stability moving forward and what are the stories that are that suck the life out of us and make it harder to, to grow and develop. And, and how do we come to terms with that? That's really, uh, you know, the, the essence of the challenge for a successor. Absolutely. I want to pick up the book and read it again. It's been a while. So I'll go dig out my copy and read it. This has been such a great conversation. Dave, do you have anything else you'd like to add? I thought that what you talked about before we actually started the episode was really good. You're thinking about another book and you don't have to talk about that idea because we don't want anybody taking that idea, but you talked about what you would do differently. And I thought maybe to end this both on the writing side, but as well on the publicity side, if you were going to, or when you do this again, what did you learn that you think you want to do a little bit differently or a little bit with more focus? Well, yeah, the first time I did this, I had never written a book, had no clue, wasn't organized. You know, I had gotten some advice from people, you know, it was like, you know, how do you structure your writing time? How do you organize yourself? And I, it was, it was really a mishmash of trying to, trying to do things. But now that I've been through it once, I'm going to have a much more organized approach. I'm going to take a lot more time on the front end before I go out and start doing the writing. I'm gonna put a lot more organization to stuff before I go out and, cause I'm gonna use the same research process that I used for the first book with the interviews. So I'm gonna be much more organized. I'm gonna put much more specificity on timing. I'm gonna enlist more support and help uh, in the process so that I can do what I'm good at. With the first book, I was trying to do everything and I wasn't thinking strategically about, all right, what's the stuff that I'm not good at and how do I get somebody else to do that for me? Then from a PR perspective, I'm gonna be much more organized about what's my messaging, what are the adjacent audiences that I can reach and how do I develop messaging for those so that when we get out into the, the PR effort right from the launch, because we have to take advantage of that first six weeks, that I'm not just hitting my core audience in that first six weeks, I'm hitting some of those adjacent audiences and developing messaging. 
yes, family working with family businesses is a very niche thing, but there are a lot of principles uh, that family businesses embody that would are are very powerful and would be great messaging for a more general business audience. It's really spending the time to craft those messages for those crossover audiences and sell uh, to those, those, those crossover and adjacent audiences. That's a really strategic and helpful piece of advice. Thank you, thank you for sharing that. I don't have any more questions. Dave, I'll ask you one last time. Any more questions that you want to ask Andrew? I think you've said everything. Andrew, this is so terrific. There's so many nuggets in here about what to do, what not to do, and your, your, your work on the PR, I think, was exceptional. And I think uh, the kind of coverage that you got, I think we should at least say this. I know you either had an interview or you had, or you had a book review in the Financial Times. Was that correct, out of London? It was a book review in the Financial Times, yeah. And that was such a huge win for you. Incidentally, that review is what got that member of that one of the largest family businesses in the US to read my book, which led to them calling me. So that that's a direct connection. So that that large amount of money that I spent on PR, it seemed like a huge number at the time, directly translated into that book review, which led to that connection to the one of the largest families in the US which led to a four-year relationship. And it goes back to this idea that you put forth early on that it's not just about the book sales, it's about what else happens as a result of the book. At the end of the day, the most rewarding thing about this book is those successors, even those that you've never heard of before coming up to say, this helped me really make sense of my world and helped me think a little bit differently. And it made me feel a little less alone. If there's one thing I hear when I start working with, with family businesses is that people often feel very alone and, and don't realize that there are others that have the same challenges. And so I think if there's anything that this book has offered to people, it's a, a sense of, of there are a lot of people out there that, that are, are working through the same stuff. That's the power of a book and a great note to end on. So let's, in this moment, before we say goodbye to Andrew, move to our words of the episode. Should I go first or do you want to go first, Dave? I had to go first for the progress, so you're up. So my word is mellifluous, and I think that I always- Whoa, 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 what is it? Mellifluous, mellifluous, mellifluous. Oh, wow. Hey, Dave, do you have a dictionary? (laughs) I got to look this thing up. And I, and I've always liked it because it does, it, it sounds very rhythmic and it sounds like my name and it actually means something that is sweet and enjoyable, especially when it comes to sound. So you might find that the birds that we're hearing outside are very mellifluous. But what I came to learn, which I was so excited about when I do a little etymological research is that Mel means honey and fluous means to flow. And my name, Melissa means honeybee. And so these, this word that I love so much is actually tied to my name, mellifluous Melissa. So do I sound sweet sounding to you? Because I could just go by mellifluous Melissa from now on. That'd be a mouthful. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't recommend that from a branding perspective. No, okay. <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I love I'll the concept. Word for it. I like the concept too. So that's my word, mellifluous. That's a good word. I'm going to say this one more time and it shows how shallow I am. I'm not sure I've even, well, I know I've never used the word, 
And when you first said it, I thought, Maleficent? Is that what she's saying? Oh, right, right, <laughs> right. I know it, it, it's all in that category. Is it a positive or a negative word based on our associations? But I think it's a very positive word. So that's, that's a beautiful word. Okay, so mine is uh, two syllables, and it's not very beautiful. But I used it at lunch day. Melissa and I went out to lunch today with an actual an author that we had worked with uh, over the course of the last two years. And he was through coming through Wheaton and he had had COVID. I think his wife had had COVID. And so we figured, hey, we put our masks on and then took them off to eat. But we had lunch together. And some, I think it was you, Melissa, asked him, what was the low point in writing the book? And then I typed up, yeah, what was the nadir of the, of the book writing process? That so is an ugly word. It is an, an ugly word. It's an ugly word. Your word is beautiful. This is an ugly word. So it's nadir. Nadir just is the lowest point, like in the life of an organization or the life of a process or the life of a person. So it's just the low point, the nadir. The nadir. I love using that word. My friend and I, we were always looking up words and there's a list of the most beautiful words and mellifluous is on that list. And there's a list of the ugliest words and nadir is on that list. I can tell you that for sure. So we have annoyingly kind of mirrored each other in this oppositional sort of way. So <laughs> what about you, Andrew? Do you have a word of the day that you'd like to share? Uh, immunized. Oh, that's great. Are you immunized? I am. I am uh, blessed that I was able to get the second shot this week and uh, thankfully minimal minimal side effects uh, and feeling pretty good right now. So um, thank kudos to everybody who's been on the front lines and, and helping us get through this and uh, feel very blessed to, uh, to have gotten the immunization. You're right in that word. We use it in a metaphorical sense and now it's going to have so much more kind of baggage with it when we use it immunized because we now know significantly what it means to be immunized from something. So that's a great word. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a hopeful word. It is a hopeful word. Absolutely. So Andrew, I just want to thank you again for being on our podcast. And again, Andrew's book is Myths and Mortals. You can get it at Amazon. And thank you for being here and sharing your insight and wisdom from going through this book writing journey. My pleasure. Thanks for all the help that you've given me over the years. And, and I really value our friendship. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I can't wait to see the next book. So Dave, before we sign off completely, can you tell our audience a little, about, a little bit about Road Trippers? So we have a online membership community called Road Trippers that we are building. And it's a, it's a monthly membership for $66 a month. It's for people who want uh, ongoing coaching for the writing. And they're in the process or journey of writing a book, whether it's on the front end or whether they're even doing book promotion. So we are just in the early stages of developing this. We're building out the back end, but we are doing a weekly Q&A with Melissa and me on Tuesday afternoons at 3.30 Central Time. And so if you'd like to jump on that Zoom call with us, it's an hour long and uh, the writers come and they have all these different questions. Melissa or I generally do a short teaching session. In fact, Melissa did one recently on how she built up her large Instagram following on McGillicuddy, which is her vintage brand. And this next week, we're going to do one on 
on voice and how to, it's called the, parade, the paragraph index, where you actually measure your sentences within a paragraph, the length of the sentences. You come up with an index to help you with cadence, right? Are your sentences too long? Are they too short? Do you have a good cadence? And that really reflects specifically about your, your voice as an author. So we're going to talk about this on Tuesday. But if you want to do this, just jump on uh, Facebook and search for road trippers it's a closed group we'll let you in and and then you'll receive the zoom link and so we're looking forward to that so uh do that and hopefully we'll see you at tuesday 3 30 central yeah well we'd love to see you so i think that's a wrap dave i'm melissa parks and i'm dave getz buckle up and write <laughs>